black walnut carob chip cookies, the mystery of the Cornelian cherry, and being arrested by a swarm of New York City park rangers. This week, it's all about foraging. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast and website for foodies at DestinationEatDrink.com. Glad to have you join me for the show. This is where we explore the cuisine of the world, and this week is an extraordinary episode where we talk with Wildman Steve Brill and Violet Brill about foraging in New York City and the edible natural world all around us. But before we get to that, let me remind you that all of our shows at Destination Eat Drink, almost 200 of them now, are available for free. You can get them at radiomisfits.com. And the great thing about these episodes is that even the old episodes, they're still fresh. So if you're new to the show, go back, check out the archives. I'm sure there's a place you're curious about or thinking of taking a trip to that we've done an episode on. Okay, this week it's foraging. My guests are Wildman Steve Brill and his daughter Violet Brill. We've also got a special unexpected guest, Wisteria, their pet parakeet, who you'll hear happily cheeping away during the show. Wildman Steve and his daughter Violet are environmentalists and educators who lead foraging tours around New York City, Westchester County, and nearby Connecticut. Wildman Steve Brill has also written several books, and I've got links to all the Wildman and Violet Brill stuff in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED198. Wildman and Violet are an amazing treasure trove of information delivered with passion and humor, and we talk about all kinds of edible plants from lamb's quarter to field garlic, shepherd's purse to sheep's sorrel, and lots, lots more. All right, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Wildman Steve Brill and Violet Brill and Wisteria, I hear in the background too. Um, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink today. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you both about uh, foraging. Same here. Happy to be here. Let's start by you telling me, both of you, Wildman and Violet, how did you get interested in foraging? Well, I like to cook. Uh, first, I was uh, went to college and uh, tried to get into medical school. My grades were not good enough. I wound up with a BA in psychology that wasn't worth the paper it was written on. I played in chess tournaments for quite a number of years and got good, but not enough to be a professional. Like I beat a master in a tournament once. Then I got more and more interested in cooking. And one day I was bicycle riding. I've also been into health and nutrition for a long time, plus exercise past the park. And there were ethnic Greek women there picking something. I asked them what they were picking, but I couldn't understand a word. It was all Greek to me. <laughs> uh, but I came home with a bag of grape leaves, which I stuffed, and they were delicious. Then I started getting books on the subject. Uh, often written by uh, authors who were using third-hand info and wouldn't know what kitchen was it fell on their head. And basically, once I was sure a plant wasn't poisonous and that I could eat it, 
I started doing all my own experiments with it. And uh, in 1982, I started leading public tours. And Violet, how about you? I have to imagine that your father is instrumental in your interest in foraging. What makes yes. you think that? <laughs> yeah, so he started taking me on the tours when I was two months old. <laughs> and by, I started uh, hopping out of the stroller to help participants on the tours identify the different plants. And I've just been surrounded by nature my entire life. And naturally, I developed a very strong love and passion for nature and the natural world. I started co-leading the tours with my dad when I was nine years old, showing people the plants and how to identify them and use them for food and medicine. Plus bossing me around and stealing all my jokes. When I was in fifth grade, when I was 10 years old, I already loved nature and I got into bird watching. Um, And ever since then, I've been a very avid birder. Um, and I started co- I started leading my own tours in 2019. So now I've been doing that um, in the first in just the Westchester parks. Now I've also branched out to Connecticut and also um, city parks like Forest Park in Queens. Um, and, you know, the love of nature um, inspired me to start bird watching, which inspired me to go into um, bird photography. And it's just been a lifelong passion of mine. And I'm just I love being able to inspire people, adults and children on the tours um, about protecting our, the natural world around us. And ever since then, yeah, now I'm working at a summer nature day camp with kids and I get to do, have a, do environmental education with children every day. And that's been super fun. So you're a birder, and this must be why you have your uh, parakeet wisteria. You know, I, I told you guys before that I live in Portugal, and there's something in Portugal that— Oh, there's wisteria again. Um, <laughs> there's something in Portugal that I found that I really haven't seen anywhere else, speaking of parakeets. And there are uh, things called snack bars in Portugal, which is basically a coffee shop that also— We'll serve beer and and light snacks. And one thing I noticed in our town is that many, 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 many of these snack bars have little parakeets inside. They've got them in a cage. And I've got to figure out why. Why everyone, only in snack bars. You you don't go to other places and see parakeets, but it seems like almost every snack bar has a a pet parakeet in uh, in the window or inside the snack bar. Well, if you find out, definitely let us know. That sounds really interesting. I mean, I know they're very pretty, so a lot of them have, a lot of people have them as cage pets. Yeah. Yeah, but wisteria flies around everywhere but the kitchen. And since uh, there are no other birds, he bonded with us when he was very young. So we're his his flock and he's trained us. Yeah, he talks. He's very, very friendly to anyone who comes over. And when he's gone to the point, he talks. We put him to sleep at night and we cover his cage. He says goodnight. And (laughs) when I put on my shoes or just pick up my key to leave, he'll say, love you, bye. Love you, Mysteria, bye. And once I cleaned his favorite spinning mirror, he says, thank you, you're a good bird. Oh, my goodness. What a smart, smart animal. Wild man, Steve, I wanted to go back because you mentioned you started doing your tours in 82. And 
for you, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing when you started doing your uh, foraging tours in New York, especially between you and the city of New York. Can you talk about your run-ins a little bit and what happened and how you got to where you are today? Uh, Yes. Well, when the uh, Parks Department found out that I was teaching foraging in their park, picking the same weeds they're cutting down by millions. They uh, put undercover agents on one of my tours, a man and a woman. They said they were married since they never held hands or kissed. I figured they'd been married a long time. (laughs) The man kept taking pictures. I'd hold up the specimen. Only he was the specimen. At the end of the tour, I ate one leaf of a dandelion. The male ranger ducked behind a tree, took out a hidden walkie-talkie. This is before cell phones. Here he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger in New York City popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb up a tree, put me in handcuffs lest I bop them on the head with a dandelion. They searched me. I don't know if they're looking for weeds or weed, but they hauled me off to the police station in handcuffs uh, where they took mug shots and fingerprints and uh, blue cigarette smoke in my face. Oh, and then they made a, uh, issued me a desk appearance ticket that said I had to go to court and could face a year in jail if convicted. And then they made a really bad mistake. They turned me loose. <laughs> Back in the wild. (laughs) Yes. I used to play in chess tournaments. If your opponent makes a mistake, you need to know what the mistake is, why it's a mistake, and how to exploit it. They are a big, big blunder, which would almost get them kicked out of the chess tournament or at least down to the next two levels, was that they did this in Central Park. If they had done this in an outlying park, I'd just be... Uh, creeping out of the lockout maybe at this day. But Central Park happens to be a world-famous park. I spent uh, the next uh, the next day on the phone with every newspaper, radio station, TV show, and wire service. That was the media of that time before the Internet that existed. The next day I went to the newsstand to see if I've gotten any results um, Uh, Three cops came after me. What do you want? I said, I haven't eaten a single dandelion. I haven't even had breakfast yet. One of the cops says, we don't care. We want your autograph. And the (laughs) cops sit in the uh, cop car or in the wee hours of the morning reading the newspaper. And I was in every newspaper. Page one, it's Chicago Sun-Times. Page two, of the New York Daily News, Associated Press, had me in newspapers around the country. Uh, I get home, the phone rings, CBS Evening News, come into Central Park right away. Dan Rather, CBS Evening News, had me uh, on for five minutes. All the other news stations were waiting online behind them to cover the same story. When they took me to court, I served Wild Man's Five Borrow Salad on the steps of the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. The press, press ate it up. Yeah, I was on everything a second time, after which uh, Mayor Koch told Parks Commissioner Henry Stern he better turn over a new leaf. leaf. Uh, He negotiated with me, dropped the charges, and hired me to lead the same tours I was leading when I was arrested. And uh, when he and I, who had been enemies before, shook hands, we got in all the media 
for a third time. I worked with the Parks Department for the next four years, left when the administration changed. And so far, they haven't come after me again, but there's always hope. Um, and uh, about 20 years later, former Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe told me the real reason they arrested me. The officials were terrified that if they allowed me to forage, someone would pretend to have been poisoned foraging, sue the city and claim that foraging is allowed. So that was um, more oh. important. And all the thousands of people I've inspired, some of whom have founded environmental organizations or doing ecotourism around the world. I mean, Violet works with kids. The kids are very impressionable. And if they develop a love for nature, uh, you have a, a lifetime true believer in, uh, in conservation and environmentalism. So the roots are spreading everywhere, wild man, Steve. I, 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 love, I love this story, but the other thing that I noticed as you were telling me this great story was, Violet, you are completing some of your dad's sentences. So, oh, yeah. I've heard my dad's jokes throughout my entire life. I mean, I'm an environmentalist, so I recycle his jokes. <laughs> you know, when when my father back in the day would tell his stories over and over, I was spraining my eyeballs from rolling them so much. <laughs> it, it's fantastic to hear you with such love and joy in your heart completing your dad's stories. And I just got to say that I really enjoyed listening to both of you tell that story. Well, we go back, yeah. we go back to my dad also. Here's he what I fun. learned. He was, here's what I learned from him that I talked to, to violence. There might be some videos of it where he clapped in his hands in front of his mouth. and um, But he learned that from his dad and I learned from him. So it's been handed down through the generations. So you, can bo so you both can do this. Yes. yes. That's we fantastic. Do duets. We do duets on our tour. <laughs> I'm, I'm also a big jazz fan. So I wanted to talk about some of your foraging tours because you guys do tours all over. I mean, not only New Brooklyn, Manhattan, Long Island, you're also out in Connecticut. Uh, I think you're up in Westchester County maybe as well. Um, yes. The thing I wanted to ask about this before we get into more specific stuff is what are the major differences? Because you're talking about places that when we think of New York, we think of it as one place, at least out, outsiders do. They think of it as one place. But I have to imagine that when you guys go to different places, whether it's Brooklyn, Manhattan, Long, wherever it is, that there must be a considerable difference in the foliage and the types of plants that you're foraging out there. Can you explain to me a little bit what those differences might be? Well, there's definitely a lot of differences um, between some of the city parks and some of those that are farther out. And probably what you wouldn't expect there to be, we actually find lots and lots of plants um, 
in the city parks. Not to say that we don't further out in like Westchester, but there are no deer in the city. And the deer seem to have all downloaded our app and bought our books. And so they know all the edible plants. And a lot of the time um, they get to them before we do. But in the city parks, there is a great, a large abundance of all kinds of edible and medicinal plants up to the point where we can't even, in a, in a park like Central Park, we cannot barely cover all that we want to cover on one tour. We could stay in the same spot do it, leading a tour for a few hours. Yeah, that's that's how much there there is. And of course, you're not going to find seaweeds in Central Park. For that, you go to the seashore on Long Island. And uh, you're not going to find ginkgo trees uh, on the Appalachian Trail. Those That's have been planted, and um, we just happen to get the fruits. And in the city parks, they also plant a lot for um, ornamental purposes, like quince. Um, they, part, they plant quince in the parks, which we do collect. Cornelian, uh, Cornelian cherries, June which are days. not in any foraging books before mine. I mean, I had a hard time with that. I identified it in a tree and shrub book. It is an ornamental member of the dogwood family. And um, I could not find any information on whether or not it was edible and had fruit. But some dogwoods are poisonous, like the American dogwood. I finally had help. There was a guy by the name of Bob. And uh, you may know someone like Bob. Whatever you tell him. He does the opposite. He does not <laughs> listen. Please sign up in advance for my tour so I know I have enough people coming. He shows up in the middle of the tour. Without signing up. Uh, whatever you tell him, he will not do it. So um, we found this uh, beautiful fruit. It's uh, about an inch and a half long, oblong, uh, and red on a large shrub. And Bob says, Wild Man, can I eat these, uh, this fruit? And Wild Man says, no, I don't know, Bob. I, that could be poisonous. Yeah, it has poisonous uh, relatives. And I haven't been able to find anything. This is uh, long before the internet. Yeah, but what if I just eat one? But what if one is the fatal dose? So as oh, soon geez. as my back is turned, he pops one in his mouth. Of I course. see it out of the corner of my eye, and I don't know whether to rejoice that I may finally be rid of Bob. But it wouldn't look good. If someone died on one of the tours. Yeah, but if it's Bob, it might be worth it. But <laughs> it did not affect Bob at all. He acted totally normal for, for Bob. Bob. He went over to a woman 30 years younger than he was. Hey, uh, do you want to go on a walk with me after the tour? Why don't you come home with me? Um, and anyway, they kept going on and on and on. Uh, that woman, her name was Linda. She called me up that evening. Wild man, that old guy followed me all the way home. I had to slam the door in his face to get rid of him. I'm never coming on another one of your tours again. Slammed down the phone, and I never saw Linda <laughs> again. Oh, so I knew that the uh, fruit was uh, probably not poisonous. And eventually I found out that it comes from Turkey. Of course, the landscapers love planting stuff from other uh, other countries. And it has beautiful flowers. Yeah, and I tried it, and it was absolutely awful. I didn't know what to do with the rest of the fruit. I let it sit there in a, uh, in a bowl on my kitchen table, and it went from bright red to a dark 
purple red and got soft and then it was delicious. So like banana. They ripen after you pick them. Yeah, and no other no other wild fruit that we have uh, in this uh, in this area does uh, does that. And then I was invited on a cable TV um, network called America's Talking when uh, talk shows and cable were new and they had a taxi uh, pick me up from my home in Queens and drive me to Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I did the show and then another taxi uh, drove me home. And uh, at a red light, the taxi driver told me he was from Turkey at a red light, I showed him the picture in one of my books. And he says, oh, we know this one in Turkey in ancient times. Uh, because the uh, twigs are long and thin and straight, we would give one twig to one boy and another one to another boy. And of course, they would start dueling. So if you're into uh, writing from ancient times, uh, mythology and history, all the sword fighters from the uh, Bronze Age or before learn how to do their sword craft from the Cornelian chariot. So I was just very lucky to, to uh, find that out. And of course, I make delicious recipes with it once it's ripe. What are some of the recipes that you make with it? Because um, here in Portugal, we have a sour cherry called Jinjin, which we make into a uh, liqueur, a spice liqueur called ginginha, which is very popular in Lisbon. Um, and I've never seen these cherries anywhere else, but I'm wondering what you guys do with these cherries that you forage. Well, we do. Um, we have a number of recipes, but I love the Cornelian cherry ice cream and sherbet. Oh, Those are um. delicious. Um, we also put them into um, muffins, pancakes. Um, yeah, everything from uh, pudding, jam, jam to puddings. Um, I make a tapioca pudding with them. Um, I made a Cornelian panna cotta recipe, Cornelian cherry uh, canton, a Cornelian pandowdy, uh, uh, Cornelian pecan cookies, uh, Cornelian chocolate pudding. Uh, I love to cook. And he has a very bad case of CCD, compulsive cooking disorder. <laughs> so, so he has, we have two free, we have the tall freezer and we have the refrigerator. And you should really see them because there are so many recipes, um, not to mention the dried nuts and mushrooms that we have on the shelves. But when you open the freezer to find something, a container may fall on your foot. I have to eat faster than I cook. That's always a challenge. <laughs> or share with the neighbors. Um, so let's say let's say we're going out foraging now. Um, it's the middle of the summer. What kind of stuff would we expect to see right now in the, in the heat of the summer? Oh, there's been lots and lots of wine berries, which, which are an invasive um, species of wild raspberry from Asia. Yeah, but they can be dangerous. They can be very dangerous because these berries are so good. I know I've experienced this at the camp I work at. Some of the kids are dying of happiness. <laughs> <laughs> and also the blackberries are amazing. Um, they're, the wild blackberries are delicious, but it's just, it's kind of annoying that we haven't seen a lot of blackberries in the past few years. There Why? haven't been 
good years for Blackberries. But that's just because there's too much competition with the iPhone. I, I'll tell you, Blackberries were, I lived in uh, New England and Rhode Island for many years. And I was a uh, artisan gelato maker. And one of my favorite things to do in Rhode Island, I don't know if they do this throughout New England, I think they do in Connecticut as well, they would use wild blackberries as kind of a border plant so that, um, you know, because of the thorns and stuff, so that animals and presumably humans couldn't get into the property. And I would go in there and I would pick bags and bags and bags of wild blackberries and make a uh, sorbetto out of them as long as I could get to the uh, bushes before the birds did. Because when I got, when I got there, man, the birds would be mad. They, they would be scree. I could hear them screeching at each other. This guy is stealing our blackberries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they are absolutely delicious and, uh, and very helpful. Um, although, uh, um, some of them can be uh, dangerous. In Shakespeare's day, they called brambles. That includes uh, thorny raspberries and blackberries, lawyers, because they grab onto you uh, and they don't let go until they've drawn blood. And not much has changed with a legal profession in 500 years. <laughs> it's very yeah, true. Yeah, we both uh been getting um, sassafras and black birch, which are year-round um, favorites of mine. Uh, a lot of like poor man's pepper and garlic mustard seeds. And soon, uh, well, in October, the um, black walnuts and uh, hickory nuts will be coming into season. But in September, hackberries, the American hackberry, will be fruiting, and those fruits will be ripening. Same with crab apples, which are always delicious. Yeah, and there are herbs like purslane and lamb's quarters um, that are incredibly delicious. Uh, the purslane is sweet, sour, and crunchy. The you lamb's- can pickle the purslane, and it's amazing. And the lamb's quarters is related to spinach and beets, so we make soups out of it, um, cream soups with cashew milk, and we make creamed lamb's quarters like you'd make creamed spinach. Yeah, and lots of other recipes, uh, sautéed with onions and garlic. And all year there are seaweeds. Um, uh, we live near the Long Island Sound, so I have some rockweed in the refrigerator, which I'm just going to sauté with uh, celery, carrots, onions, uh, garlic, whatever else I have around, some uh, some tofu, and serve it with noodles and rice, uh, plus a vegan uh, cheese sauce that I uh, defrosted that's uh, in the refrigerator now. Rockweed is so is such a good seaweed, and you can't buy it because the seaweeds that you can buy come from Japanese cuisine. So those are Pacific seaweeds, and this is an Atlantic one, so no one really knows about it. And I use rockweed all the time, even though I'm a jazz fan. <laughs> Right. Also, wood sorrel is a great one, uh, which has looks like clovers, except it has three heart-shaped leaves instead of oval-shaped leaves. The kids call it lemongrass, and it tastes sour. So that's one for everybody. Easy to recognize. It's interesting to me that you mentioned lamb's quarter because it's delicious in salads, but I remember when I was going to college back in— uh, 
when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And uh, I was at the University of Illinois, which is in the middle of farm country. And I remember watching on television the um, advertisements that they would have for the pesticides and for the herbicides. And one of the things that they would say is kills lamb's quarter. Because oh, wow. they wanted to, they wanted to eradicate it. Yet, I think you guys are making this excellent point. Weeds, what we call weeds, weeds are completely edible as long as you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, and there are some poisonous plants around, uh, around too. I mean, all of the plants that we're picking are um, a lot of them are renewables, um, and some of the plants that people call call weeds are native. Um, I mean, we pick a lot of invasive species too on our tours. I, I do have to admit, we did have one death on a tour. Um, there's a plant called field garlic, which uh, is related to the onions, uh, chives, and and scallions and garlic and uh, there is a similar looking plant called star of bethlehem the field garlic has round leaves and a strong smell the star of bethlehem has flat leaves and no smell and we warned everyone not to uh, pick the poisonous one five minutes later someone was putting the toxic plant into her bag we stopped her before she could eat any, but it was too late. She died of embarrassment. <laughs> I was holding my breath as you were telling this story, you guys. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's poison ivy, too, uh, which I show everyone. One of the nice things about poison ivy is that we find it on every tour over and over again. So by the end of the tour, um, by the end of the tour, Everyone recognizes it. The worst thing to do is to is to burn it because if you burn it and breathe in the smoke, it can kill you. Oh, jeez! Unless you're Bill Clinton, who doesn't inhale. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the dangers of foraging, especially amateurs, just people going out there without any previous knowledge they haven't gone on your tour wild man they haven't gone on your tour violet so they don't really know what they're doing what kind of advice do you give to these people in order to be safe well you never pick anything without knowing a hundred percent sure what you're looking at identifying every feature of the plant if that means coming back and looking at it at a different time of year then so be it um you never eat something if you're not a hundred percent sure what it is Fortunately, um, a lot of the plant, a lot of these plants, um, some of these plants are common and um, easy to recognize ones. So we always tell beginners to start out with the common, easy to recognize plants. And once you go on our tours, you say you start seeing the plants um, where were you ever you're walking. Once you see them once, you start noticing them when you're on your own, and then the repetition is what really gets it stuck in your head because. When we go outside, it's like walking into a grocery store and knowing what the tomatoes look like and what the carrots look like and what is celery. And when we go outside, it's similar for us, identifying common plantain or shepherd's purse or sheep sorrel. So um, fortunately, there are um, good, a lot of good resources um, now that are coming out for beginners to help identify plants. But you really shouldn't be putting anything in your mouth if you haven't identified. Yeah, I, mean, I have five books each with a different emphasis and an app, 
and um, my website has all the info and the links. We'll have links to your books in the uh, show notes, but tell me a little bit about this app. Um, how does it work? Do you do, you, uh, do it kind of like a QR code and you aim your camera at the plant and it identifies it for you? No, there are other, there are other uh, apps that already do that. It gives you all the information. I'm an artist, so you see my idealized version, um, drawings and paintings of what the plant, uh, what the plant looks like uh, without all the clutter of the, of the uh, surrounding environment. And then there are photos of all the different stages, including close-ups. So uh, you get lots of use. So the plants change a lot during the seasons. Uh, a few of them look the same all the way through, but many of them have totally different stages. So that has all the stages and then everything that you can do with them. Because I took, I found uh, new ways of preparing things. For example, there's a, a native tree called sassafras and the Native Americans made tea with the root by simmering it. And then a man by the name of Hires used it to invent root beer. Hmm. And I found a quick and easy way of making root beer. Uh, you chill the tea and then add chilled sparkling water, but not all at once so that you can add more sparkling water or more tea according to your preference. And then you add a sweetener at the end. The other thing that no one has done with sassafras before um, is use the cambium, the uh, layer under the bark, sometimes called the inner bark, but it's not bark. Uh, the cambium as a culinary seasoning, and it tastes a uh, little like a combination of cinnamon, um, anise, and root beer. I put in everything from uh, rice pudding to um, uh, to smoothies, and it is incredible. Uh, in Louisiana, the young leaves of sassafras are used uh, dried and powdered as a thickener called filet powder, and the resulting soup made with it's called gumbo. But because they didn't have electric blenders in Louisiana in 1800, I saw that you can just put the young leaves in the blender with some of the soup liquid, and then you also uh, get the gumbo uh, thickening. Of, uh, of course, like other plants, there are some dangers to sassafras. Uh, it's, it's so dangerous, the FDA took it off the market. Yeah, they made it illegal to sell sassafras. Um, and it, even though... Um, well, it, yeah. it, it, they found out to their horror that if you drink only 200 cups of sassafras tea a day made from artificial concentrate for only two years and you happen to be a rat, you'll have a higher chance of developing liver cancer. And that's because rats um, and rodents convert the active ingredient in sassafras saffron into a carcinogen, but humans do not. In all recorded history, no human being has gotten from drinking sassafras tea. Yeah, but it is off the market, even though beer, due to its alcohol content, is 20 times as, car as carcinogenic to humans as sassafras is to rats. So the experiment proves two important points. One, there's a stronger beer lobby in sassafras in Washington, in Washington 
and a sassafras lobby, and two... There's a lot of rats in the FDA. (laughs) We need to empower the sassafras lobby, I think. Guys, my friend Dave has this saying that uh, everyone has a story about meeting a famous person, and I'd like to ask you guys, have you ever had a famous person go on one of your tours? Uh, Yeah, Al Roker, um, who was a host of... uh, I think the Sunday Today Show, uh, Alice Waters, and um, oh wow, has been on the tour. Dan Barber, uh, a famous chef. Uh, I can't even remember all the all the people. And I, uh, Richard Gere. Oh wow! Yeah, and I don't even remember all the all the uh, people. And I've been on tons of uh, of talk shows, especially after I was arrested. But I still get publicity from that to this day. Yeah, that's almost 40 years ago. And, you know, it's one of the first things that I brought up with you. So I, I think that's going to follow you around for quite a while, Wild Man. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm a truffle guy. Um, I actually wrote a novel where truffles were part of the central focus, the central theme of the uh, of the book. And um, one thing that, that struck me is that... You're so foraging for uh, mushrooms, foraging for uh, wild plants, wild fruit. Um, it, it all it all falls under the same category. But I, I find one big difference between what you and Violet are doing and what the truffle hunters do, because with the truffle hunters, it's like there's a secret society and you don't even share maybe with your children your favorite truffle hunting spots or your favorite mushrooming spots. Yet here you guys are taking people in public, showing them all the best places and teaching them about all the plants. My question to you is, do you guys have a secret spot that you don't share with anybody else where you're like, this is just for us? No, we are very into sharing. We are open completely with people around us. We think that, we use our knowledge as a power to um, educate and to inspire, really, people to take care of the environment around us. So, um, however, we can get people more excited, more into nature. And on that, on our tours, that'll look like showing the artwork or playing the brillophone adds music. We also add the um, folklore, mythology, the stories, and, of course, telling the jokes and do whatever we can to get people more engaged. So... We don't have any um, like secret spots or anything. We try to share to get people to spread their love of nature and inspire. Yeah, exactly. And I also don't like the approach of just hitting people on the head with one fact or the other. Uh, after another, I'd rather show some uh, pictures, tell some stories, uh, give people time to collect these renewable resources. I think uh, um the opposite approach with too much information overload. That's called cool. <laughs> and you're obviously teaching with humor as well, which is probably the most effective teaching tool that you could probably use. Um, but yeah. b- before I let you go, um, Wildman, you've talked about a few of your favorite recipes and a few things that you like to cook. But I wanted to ask you, Violet, um, are you a cook? And what are your, some of your favorite things to make? Um, well, I do, um, love helping my dad cooking. Um, 
we make like pudding together, which is like a tapioca pudding. Um, with black with birch. Flavored with black birch, with- which is a tree that has oil of wintergreen in it, and it's native. Um, so that's amazing. Also, uh, crack black walnuts open um, to make black walnut carob chip cookies or roll my dad's vegan um, chocolate uh uh, carob chip truffles that are flavored with the Kentucky coffee tree um, beans are amazing. Um, yeah, this is a tree in the legume family that has the same flavor as coffee, and people used it as a coffee substitute. But I discovered that the combination of the Kentucky coffee tree seeds uh, roasted around with chocolate and or carob are an incredible flavoring. Um, flavorings are the minor ingredients in recipes, but uh, they make the difference between a good recipe and an outstanding recipe. These all sound so incredibly delicious, and it just uh, makes my heart full that you guys are teaching folks about this and that it is so environmentally friendly, it's sustainable, and it's renewable. Uh, Wildman Steve Brill, Violet Brill, thank you for being on the podcast, but most of all, Thank you for all the great work that you guys do, educating folks and teaching them about the uh, natural world. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. We yeah. appreciate it a lot. We, we do. We meet so many great people online and in person that it's uh, a real privilege uh, to have stumbled into doing this kind of work. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the meeting all the people that I do on the tours, both adults and kids, and seeing people actively being inspired uh, by our foraging tours and coming up with their own ways to take care of the environment is really one of my favorite parts of the work that we do. Together. Yeah, also, also people uh, years later, oh, wow. Uh, um, I, I had this annoying person on a tour. Every time I try to show her a plant, she already knew it. How do you know so much? Oh, well, when I was in uh, in, in uh, um, middle school, they had one of your books in the library. I took it out over and over and over again. I learned every single plant. That's, that's uh, and uh, remember we did one in Bedford yeah. Post Inn. There was this kid that there knew was almost this kid everything. That knew all the plants. Oh, how do you know those plants? Oh, I have your app. <laughs> so, it really is a privilege. Okay, there you go. Not only was that a fun and educational conversation, I just loved how Wildman and Violet's parakeet wisteria kept chiming in at the appropriate times. What a smart little bird. All right. Get Wildman's books and the app. I've got links in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED198. And that should do it for this week. Next week, we're in Boston for some chowda talk. Until then, get over to destinationeatdrink.com. I just published a story about a crazy boat race in my town of Setubal, Portugal. You can get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor, would you? Rate and review us on your podcast app, whether you're Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Podbean, wherever you are, I would really appreciate it. It would be awesome. And obrigado. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy whose foraging is limited to his neighbor's refrigerator, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. 
Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>